0: The American POTUS podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, William McKinley... The U.S. was booming when he took office, and that opened the door to expansion, global expansion. Cuba, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Guam, they all became part of the U.S. in one form or another, a move that turned us into a true global power. He was easily re-elected for a second term, but it was cut tragically short by an assassin's bullet after just six months. He's not the most popular occupant of the White House, but maybe he should be. For what he did... And what more he could have done. William McKinley on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest for this episode on POTUS number 25 is Bob Mary. In addition to being the editor of National Interest, he's also been a correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and president and editor-in-chief of Congressional Quarterly. From time to time, you'll see him on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and Newsmakers. Bob is the author of several terrific history books, including Polk, A Country of Vast Designs, which we featured on season one, episode seven of this podcast, and then another title we're going to discuss today called President McKinley, Architect of the American Century, which we will link to on AmericanPOTUS.com. Bob, you're our first repeat guest here on American POTUS. Thanks for joining us again.
1: Well, I'm very pleased to be back. Thanks for having me.
2: Bob, thank, thank you so much. And I've really enjoyed, as always, I enjoy all your writing. I really enjoyed President McKinley. We know that the Civil War was a crucible for so many, including McKinley. How did his experiences in the war shape or reveal the future president?
1: Well, you know, McKinley was uh, pretty much of an unshaped kid when the war broke out. He was 18 years old. He had gone to a college for uh, a year, but then he had some kind of a physical ailment, which necessitated his going back home to Ohio. And... Uh, certain economic circumstances required that uh, everybody in the family uh, go to work. So that was the end of his college experience. Uh, So he was a school teacher and he worked for the postal service or the post office. And uh, he was kind of languishing. It wasn't clear where he was going to go or who he was or what he was going to be able to accomplish. Then comes the war. Uh, And he pretty promptly uh, volunteers uh, and uh, ends up uh, in the four-year experience. He concludes the war as a brevet major in the Army. He had moved up from a private to becoming a a sergeant, uh, and uh, through a lot of really uh, serious uh, experiences and uh, episodes of daring do and courage, uh, he had uh, very quick um, promotions. Uh, so the war really, I think the biggest thing, the biggest impact the war had on William McKinley was to establish for him who he was. He had a great deal of confidence in who he was. His mentor uh, was one of his commanding generals who was very solicitous of him, and that was Rutherford B. Hayes, who later became president, became congressman during the war. Uh, and was his mentor, as I say, and guided him and his ambition to be a politician, to become a lawyer first and then to become a politician. So the war really, I think, kind of shaped him into a man who knew who he was and knew what he wanted.
2: And after that war, he served as congressman. He was governor of Ohio. And then McKinley set his sights on the White House. How did he and his campaign manager, Mark Hanna, approach The 1896 presidential race and how did their methods in that election change presidential campaigns forever?
1: Well, first he had to get the nomination, and the nomination uh, normally the votes uh, in the conventions were were generally controlled by the bosses, mostly the big city bosses in New York and Philadelphia and elsewhere. So it's a fascinating story. He sent uh, Mark Hanna to New York to meet with these guys. People like Thomas Platt of New York, who was kind of enigmatic in the sense that he was somewhat phlegmatic, um, and it was kind of hard to see how he was ma- how he managed to maintain total control over the Republican Party in New York and his patronage, but he managed to do it. And Matthew Quay, who was very erudite, he read Cicero, Cicero in the Latin, um, and others, Joe Manley of Maine and James Clarkson of Iowa. And these were powerful men, and they controlled a lot of votes in the conventions. And uh, so um, Mark Hanna went to New York to meet with these guys and uh, wanted to know whether he would uh, get their support. And they said, yeah, on, on the in, in, in exchange for these favors. And they wanted to continue to control Republican patronage in their areas. And Platt wanted to become Treasury Secretary. So Hannah takes the train back and goes to Cleveland, has a big dinner with some of the McKinley's top aides uh, and to discuss all this. And he says, uh, it's all over but the shouting, Governor. Now, we've got all these boys on board. And uh, he starts to lay out what they want in exchange. And McKinley puffs on his cigar, stands up, walks across the room a couple of times and says, Mark, there's some things in life that come to too high a price. I, I, if that's what the price is, I'm I'm just gonna have to get out. Hey, hold it, governor. He said uh <laughs> he said they said that's what it would take, but I don't think I don't think we have to give up. If you are not comfortable with this, we can take these guys on. So they did, and it was a kind of an amazing political story. We, um bosses all kind of got together and concluded that they needed to thwart McKinley on the first ballot in order for them to get somebody who would be more malleable. But in the end, they couldn't do it. Uh, And um, Hannah and others uh, who were very, very effective in his nomination battle uh, pulled it off and McKinley did get uh, the nomination on the first ballot. But after that, once they had the uh, nomination, uh, they had to face a wave of political sentiment, very powerful political sentiment, the populist wave out in the South and the West, in rural areas and farming communities uh, where liquidity was hard to come by and the farmers were struggling. Uh, and they wanted to basically upend the gold standard and and increase liquidity by moving to a you know, letting silver as well as gold be a basis for um our monetary system and uh, McKinley had to deal with this he, 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 he we'll get to this i'm sure but he ran against william jennings bryan who was the great exponent of silver and uh it was it was touch and go initially uh but he managed to uh navigate those waters pretty carefully and uh he he retained a commitment to the gold standard but he was uh, not as um as ideological about it as other republicans and so he managed to um, finesse that issue fairly well but the other thing is given that uh he he sort of transformed general election campaigning in America because Hannah realized that uh, that they need this was a complicated matter, this gold standard versus silver standard, and people thought, well, silver means we'll have more money and It wasn't as simple as that, so they had to engage in what we might call an educational campaign with lots of leaflets and um collateral uh, and materials sent out, masses and masses of them sent out explaining this thing in the old days. It was torchlight parades and rallying the troops and big rallies. Um, which was like basically um, energizing the base, as we say in today's political parlance. But uh, what they were trying to do was expand the base by explaining to people that no, you don't want to go down that siren song of of William Jennings Bryan and the um, you know we're not going to be crucified on the cross of gold. Um, they needed to explain that. Plus. There were a lot of new immigrants to America, and they needed to be educated as well. So the idea was to not just energize the base, but to expand the base. And that's what they ultimately did and why they had a very strong presidential victory.
2: Very impressive organization across the nation, um, for sure. Um, you know, McKinley reminds me of George W. Bush in a way, and that he came into office saying he wanted to focus on domestic issues but right away was drawn into foreign issues uh so let, let's let's talk first about hawaii why ultimately did mckinley proceed with the annexation of the hawaiian islands and how did that issue almost lead to hostilities with japan
1: uh yeah <clears throat> and the uh germans were also germany at that time was uh, on the move and it was expanding economically and expanding in population dramatically and and looking for its place in the sun and and um in those days the your place in the sun came through imperialism creating empire and so the germans had their eye on hawaii the hawaiian islands as well well it's a very interesting story um as you know uh, a lot of americans went to hawaii and got into the sugar trade uh, sugar um farming and and um and made huge amounts of money um, James Missioner, in his book Hawaii says that the Congregationalists, the missionaries, went to Hawaii to do good and ended up doing very, very well. <laughs> uh, and there were quite a large number of uh, mostly Westerners, mostly Americans, uh, who made lots of money and, and who were economically very prominent in Hawaii. They intermarried with the Hawaiians, um, but they didn't have a lot of political power and right around that time before McKinley's presidency uh with uh, with uh, some help from a, a US naval captain who happened to have a ship there at the time they upended the Hawaiian monarchy and created a i guess it would be something like a bit of a, a oligarchy with the american uh o- people kind of in charge uh over the old system and uh, Grover Cleveland, this all happened in the in the uh, administration um, of uh, Benjamin Harrison. And Grover Cleveland was aghast at this, and he and because under Harrison we seem to be moving towards an annexation of Hawaii. But Cleveland said this was a terrible thing; it was a blot on America. We shouldn't have been involved in this. It wasn't any of our business. Uh, and then in comes McKinley, uh, and the. Uh, Hawaiian leadership was very interested in annexing itself or aligning itself with America in some formal manner. Uh, And so McKinley almost immediately reversed the Cleveland view. Uh, He didn't necessarily embrace what had happened under the Harrison administration. Um, And it's not clear from, from the record that he left what was exactly in his mind, but we do know this. The Hawaiian islands constitute one of the most strategic points in the entire globe because the Pacific Ocean is vast. And if you want to project power across the Pacific Ocean, it's very, very difficult to do unless you have some place in the middle of it. And that's Hawaii. So think of this way. Uh, If the Japanese had acquired Hawaii, and they had as much of a claim, probably more of a claim than we did, there were a lot of Japanese who were working in the – in the sugar plantations, and um, uh, they weren't always treated all that well, and Japan had an interest in how they were treated, and it had an interest in this large population group in Hawaii. Uh, So if Japan had acquired those islands, instead of attacking Pearl Harbor in 1941 from Japan, they could have been attacking the west coast of America from Hawaii. Uh, And that sort of crystallizes the significance of Hawaii. And somehow McKinley got that. And so he um, maneuvered and ended up negotiating with um, the head of the Hawaiian Islands, the leadership there, a, a guy by the name of Dole had a one of the longest beards I ever saw of anybody of that kind of a <laughs> prominent political consequence uh, and brought it about. But it wasn't easy to get it through the, the uh, Senate because that uh, treaty had to be done uh, as a treaty, meaning it had to be ratified by the Senate, or which took two thirds, or as a piece of legislation uh, approved by both houses of Congress. He ended up going the, the legislative route um, because I don't think he ever would have gotten the two thirds in the Senate, but he did get it passed, and we did get so um, we did get Hawaii. I, I just have to say, if I can, gentlemen, that um, that you have to tie this together also with what he did in terms of initiating a really serious effort uh, to get America towards building the Panama Canal, because it was all of a piece. It was all of a piece in terms of America projecting its power and expanding. Uh, Into these areas, if you can move your naval vessels from easily from the Pacific to the uh, from Atlantic or vice versa, you can project power much more quickly and easily and and inexpensively than if you have to have two full fleets in both of those oceans. Um, And of course, we were building a big fleet anyway. So this was all part of America's expansionist zeal uh, that really guided us through many much of our early history.
2: And that leads us to our, to our next question, confronting the issue of Spain and what was going on in Cuba. Could, could you summarize for us the state of affairs with Spain as McKinley entered office, and why do you believe his incremental diplomatic approach to resolving the crisis in Cuba was ultimately unsuccessful?
1: Yeah, I can do that. And it's a very fascinating story. And I'm going to sort of um, precede it by saying that I think that McKinley kind of knew what he was doing. And I think he was prepared to go to war from the very beginning. But I'll get to that in a second. So Spain's jewel in the crown of its uh, Caribbean possessions uh, was, was now Cuba. But the Cuban people were really not very happy with the Spanish overlordship. Uh, And there had been an insurrection that had occurred, I think, around the time of our Civil War. And that was finally put down after, I don't know, a decade or something like that. And now they were facing a very, very serious insurrection, an independence movement uh, in Cuba against the Spanish overlordship. And this had been going on for a long time in the Spanish, which was, Spain was a was a declining nation, a declining empire. And it wasn't a particularly functional country at that. And it was struggling against this insurrection. And they instituted some, air, some um, um, strategic uh, um, moves designed to bring it to heel. Uh, And they were putting people very systematically into these camps. And they later were, in fact, they were called concentration camps to try to dry up the support that the insurrection was getting from the populace. Well, they didn't handle it very well at all. uh, And disease and starvation were killing um, thousands of Cubans. And so two things kind of emerged here. One was a very strong humanitarian view in America that this simply had to stop. But the other was strategic because while the humanitarian Americans were scandalized and outraged and sick at heart what was going on, the strategic significance was that this was chaos in our neighborhood and the chaos couldn't last forever. Something was going to have to come and bring stability to it. Uh, And the fear was that some other much more powerful and much more functional country uh, would establish itself right in the middle of our backyard. And that was not tenable. Germany was one possibility. I think the British was another. And uh, so that was a significant national security threat. And I think that McKinley was motivated by both of those things, but he was very conscious uh, of the security threat. So he wanted Spain out, but he wanted to do it without war, if at all possible. And um, so he basically gave them an ultimatum. And it was very bold uh, and even almost kind of diplomatically brutal. He said, look, you can defeat the insurrection for all we care, but you have to do it. Or you can negotiate some kind of a settlement with the people of Cuba that's going to end this thing or you're gonna to have to get out. And we don't care how it, you know, what, how this is done, but, but this can't continue. We can't have this going on in our neighborhood. Of course, the Spanish said, well, it's none of your business. It's our country, it's our, it's our colony, uh, and we will um, do what we have to do. But ultimately, McKinley's approach proved to be pretty sound. Um, because the Spanish became increasingly agitated uh, and uh, concerned. Um, And then, of course, with the blowing up, which was, I think, clearly accidental, of the Maine, the uh, battleship USS Maine in Havana Harbor, um, basically made war inevitable.
2: Once that war began, what strategies did McKinley and his advisors implement uh, to successfully fight that, that war?
1: Well, it was a three—it was a three-step strategy, really, and it was very simple. (laughs) Number one, destroy Spain's Pacific fleet at Manila Bay. Number two, destroy Spain's Atlantic fleet, which ended up at Santiago Harbor, Cuba. And while initially there was going to be an effort to capture Havana, uh, it later, because the fleet was in Santiago, uh, that later changed. So capture. Uh, Santiago Harbor and forced Spain to sue for peace. And from a military standpoint, all three of those things had amazing success. Within three to four months, we had destroyed those two fleets and we had taken over Havana, uh, had taken over Santiago um, in in Cuba. Um, Now, there were some problems that indicated that things weren't as smooth in the army as they ought to have been it had to do with uh, the troops and the leadership of the troops and uh, 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 general william shafter uh not getting the troops up to the up to the mountains where there was safe ground from malaria and more significantly from yellow fever And that proved to be something of a fiasco and that marred the victory a bit but generally speaking america was thrilled uh and um Uh, George Dewey, the admiral who destroyed the Pacific fleet in Manila, was uh, viewed as a great hero and even potentially a presidential candidate, perhaps a presidential candidate against McKinley himself. But ultimately, McKinley's political standing was too strong for uh, uh, a challenge by George Dewey.
2: After that quick and complete American victory, We suddenly had an overseas empire. Can you review for us the terms of the treaty with with Spain?
1: Yeah, when the war broke out, McKinley wrote on a piece of paper, we must, I, I don't have the exact words here. I used to have it in my head exactly. But essentially he said, we must capture all that we can during the war and we must keep all that we want after the war. Which, was, which demonstrated that this wasn't some namby-pamby guy who <laughs> yeah, right. was a purposeful man who, who developed his strong idea of what he wanted. And he didn't always use direct methods. Often he was operating on the basis of indirect uh, thinking and maneuvering and letting people think that uh, he didn't really know what he wanted, getting them to do what he wanted when they thought that it was their idea, when in fact, it was actually his idea. But but in terms of this um, war, he knew this was going to transform America, and he welcomed that. So the intermediary turned out to be the French ambassador, a guy by the name of Jules Campon. Uh, And he came to see McKinley and said that Spain wanted to sue for peace. And he suggested that your victory has been so sound that you can afford to be generous in, in um, putting forth, if you're willing to put forth, uh, the terms that you're insisting upon. And McKinley immediately made this decision that, number one, Spain would relinquish Cuba and Puerto Rico as a condition of the talk's even beginning. And it was clear in America that we w- did not have designs on Cuba, that Cuba was not going to become an American colony or protectorate. Except for a very um, brief uh, interim period, it was it was all designed for Cuban independence and and that had been sort of uh, stamped on American policy through uh, legislative action. and McKinley was very committed to that. but nevertheless, he said, we also need Puerto Rico as a kind of reparation uh, for um, the problems and the, and the price that we had to pay for the war. Number two, he won an island in what is now the Mariana Islands, which turned out to be Guam, and he said we would hold Manila, and uh, we would hold Manila pending negotiated settlement, the uh, which would establish what we would do overall with the Philippines. And ultimately, he decided, and this was an agonizing decision that went on for quite some time, and and just just collecting information for a sound decision was pretty arduous. um, But ultimately, uh, he decided that he wanted the whole archipelago. The reason was we were expanding our Navy, we were expanding our our, our range of activity and our position in the world. And in order to do that, we needed coaling stations. So obviously, you have to have a coaling station. Well, you have to protect a coaling station with a naval base. And he concluded that he really couldn't Protect a naval base without really getting control of the entire archipelago. So that was a very bold decision. They obviously generated a significant anti-war and anti-imperial counterforce in America with people such as Andrew Carnegie, Carl Schurz, Mark Twain, uh, the editor of the New York Post and the uh, and the uh, Nation magazine, Edwin Godkin. Uh, And these were people who thought this was a terrible policy and America should not go into the world in such a dramatic fashion. But ultimately, the political force was behind uh, the imperial mission. Uh, And that's what McKinley pursued. The
2: Philippines rose in rebellion when the insurgents there realized we meant to govern that nation. How how did President McKinley address the Filipino insurgency and what were the results?
1: Well, I have to say, I, I think that it's, uh, it can be said that uh, McKinley never really quite understood it. He saw uh, U.S. presence there and U.S. action in the Philippines as essentially a humanitarian mission. We had, we had um, overthrown the Spanish yoke uh, and given the Philippine peoples an opportunity to have a much more uh, sane, I guess, and and a serene kind of uh, government that wouldn't be uh, difficult to deal with. And so he didn't really see coming our insurrection, uh, the insurrection that we faced against uh, Filipinos who weren't particularly pleased to have anybody um, running things, including the United States. His conclusion, however, was that the Filipino people were simply not ready uh, to govern themselves, and that it was our mission uh, to get them ready uh, and immediately he uh, after uh, when he got to a point where he felt that he could have civilian authority in the Philippines, uh, he got uh, William Howard Taft, one of the really um, high stature men in American uh, jurisprudence in American politics to go out there and be the governor of the Philippines. Um, But as I say, uh, the political uh, political ramifications of this were very dangerous for McKinley because of that insurrection, which was essentially fighting a guerrilla war, not unlike what we later did in Vietnam it was politically perilous, because if there were too many casualties, if it looked hopeless, as ultimately it did in Vietnam, the electorate could turn against the war and immediately turn against administration, once again, like what happened in Vietnam. That did not happen, however, because we, we were able to keep the insurrection at bay to enough of an extent uh, that we that the the political implications weren't as powerful in America as they could have become. Uh, and, uh, ultimately it was a long slog. Uh, we captured the great, um, Filipino, um, ins- uh, insurrectionist, the, the freedom fighter, if you will, Aguinaldo, uh, in the process. And that pretty much broke the back of the, uh, opposition, the guerrilla opposition. And, um, and ultimately led uh, uh, created a possibility for Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, to um, bring the thing to a conclusion.
2: Well, staying in Asia, which loomed larger and larger um, in in McKinley in McKinley's administration, but due to issues in in China, we became involved in what's called the Boxer Rebellion. How did our role in that Boxer Rebellion illustrate our growing status, our growing power? among the world's nations?
1: Well, for one thing, I think the first thing to say would be that if we did not, if we had not had the Philippines by the time that this occurred and occurred in in 1900, uh, we wouldn't have been in a position to join the other Western powers who sent uh, military personnel into China to essentially protect and save uh, thousands of Western diplomats and others uh, Mm -hmm. who were under siege in the diplomatic compound in what is now called Beijing, because uh, we did have military forces and naval forces in the Philippines, we were able to join that effort, which meant that we had diplomatic standing uh, once the thing was over, uh, and we exercised that diplomatic standing rather significantly under McKinley. But the background is that China had been under humiliation for close to a century; it was um, beset. Uh, by Westerners who were essentially carving up the country. Uh, It was in societal chaos uh, run largely by warlords because there wasn't any real effective national government. And there was a great deal of anti-Western fervor because the West was seen as um, basically creating this internal civic mess, which was not uh, unfounded. So as I say, the Western nations were carving up China and under McKinley, And his very impressive Secretary of State, John Hay, for the second half of his first term and into his second term, created what was called the Open Door Policy, which was basically designed to create a situation in which there was equal treatment for the Western countries and to basically end the carving up frenzy that was going on. Uh, There was also a missionary factor. There were a lot of French, British, and American missionaries who uh, were constituting what one Englishman called a standing insult to the Chinese people because it was these people were attempting to bring China away from its uh, cultural roots. So I guess there were like I don't know um, seven thousand or more casualties through this Boxer Rebellion, and the. Um, Unfortunate uh, diplomats were under siege and and threatened by annihilation. Uh, So America joined uh, the other Western countries who created a force of several thousand troops to make their way from the coast uh, into Beijing uh, and free and and save essentially uh, these people who were running out of bullets, they were running out of food, and they were running out of everything they needed to protect themselves from the angry, frenzied uh, mob of the Boxer Rebellion. Um, and it demonstrated that America had really emerged as an equal uh, to the European powers in terms of uh, projecting its own power into Asia.
2: And you mentioned uh, John Hay, who of course, uh, started with President Lincoln, right? He was uh, Lincoln's assistant, and and by this point, um, assumed a, a greater role even with Mister McKinley. So it is it shows again, I think, how young our country is uh, that um, that Mister Hay was was in an important role for McKinley. Let, let's let's come back um, to um, to the Caribbean and Cuba. Uh, we know during the Spanish American War, that's where T. R. Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I'm not allowed to call him Teddy. I know that, Scott. Theodore Roosevelt uh, (laughs) had his heroics with the Rough Riders. And after that, uh, Theodore was nominated to serve as vice president in McKinley's second term. So his first vice president, uh, Hobart, had passed away. Why did Teddy Roosevelt, why was he chosen? And what was the relationship like between McKinley and this very energetic new vice president? (laughs) <laughs> well, I've got a
1: I've got a funny relationship with uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I, I'm yeah. I'm intrigued by him. I'm endlessly amused by him, um, <laughs> and I'm very very impressed with him. But he could be a total jerk, uh, and was operating out of control uh, at least a quarter of the time. So um, when McKinley is elected, uh, he's trying to. F- Create his team and um, a lot of people including John Hay and others and of course, Theodore Roosevelt had the, his followers were not just his followers, they were his ardent followers. they loved the guy so <laughs> so uh he's vying for to become assistant naval secretary, and the uh, naval secretary was going to be a guy of former Massachusetts governor by the name of long and um McKinley was reluctant to go along with this, uh, this um, effort on the part of Roosevelt's friends to get him into that job as assistant Naval secretary. He said to one of them, he said, your man Theodore is always causing trouble and controversy. And I'm not sure I need that. He said, no, no, he's going to be good. He'll be fine. Uh, He he understands uh, um, what he has to do. So he does become assistant Naval secretary and uh, And I can't think of his first name, but uh, Secretary Long, the the, um, naval secretary, got to a point where he couldn't take an afternoon off because he didn't know what Roosevelt was going to do with the power when he was uh, sort of the acting secretary and was writing in his diary that, you know, he's got a lot of talents, but he just needs to learn how to control himself. So then the war breaks out and immediately does what he did, which is heroic. He forms this crazy eclectic group of warriors and they charge up San Juan Ridge, uh, Breeze Hill and the San Juan Ridge. And it becomes one of the greatest military heroes of the time, along, of course, with George Dewey. Uh, And he knows exactly how to exploit this because he's just so scintillating and, and fascinating a character. And so he exploits it by becoming governor of New York. Well, as governor of New York, he comes across, he's a, he's a reformer, of course, um, and, and Thomas Platt, the aforementioned big boss of the Republican establishment in New York, was a non-reformer. He was an anti-reformer <laughs> and a, a, a protect, very protective of his uh, prerogatives. So Roosevelt tried to get along with Platt, but they were oil and water, and they just didn't mix. Uh, and Platt was really trying to get rid of him somehow. And he thought that sort of promoting him for the vice presidential um, t- uh, spot on the ticket uh, would be just just the ticket for him. So Roosevelt said, no, "I'm not interested. I'm, I'm not interested in doing that." But he shows up at the convention in his in his um, rough rider hat, his old battered up rough rider hat. And immediately in the lobby of the hotel where he arrived, people were saying, "That's a candidate's hat."
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. McKinley adopted a view that he was going to leave it to the convention who to nominate for vice president. And he knew that Roosevelt was beloved and and he generated all kinds of excitement. But Hannah hated Roosevelt because Hannah was a control freak and he was always trying to protect McKinley's interest. And he felt that Roosevelt was a man that you couldn't trust to stay in line. And so, Hannah started promoting you know, sort of denigrating the Roosevelt boomlet uh and um McKinley had to send a wire to Hannah and basically say back off yeah, I I I don't want this to happen you you you're going against the huge sentiment of the convention I don't need this uh and McKinley always loyal to uh, I mean uh, Hannah always loyal to McKinley uh, ultimately complied uh, and that's how uh, young Teddy um, became vice president and how ultimately he became president.
2: Do we know how well McKinley and Roosevelt got along?
1: Oh, that's an interesting part of it, too. Um, McKinley was quite beguiled by uh, Roosevelt. He, in the first, even in the first term before he left uh, to go fight in the war and end up in New York as governor, uh, he invited Um, Roosevelt to his uh, afternoon carriage rides around Washington, where he got a lot of business done. And part of it was that he just found uh, Roosevelt uh, amusing and good company and lively. Um, And part of it is that he really respected his intellect. Uh, So he was not uh, opposed to Roosevelt. And McKinley had a great deal of confidence in his ability to manipulate people. He didn't do it overtly. He didn't do it through bravura or um, big fancy actions. Uh, He did it very, very subtly, but very, very effectively. And he was aware of all this, and he was aware that he was able to do this. So he didn't fear having somebody like Roosevelt near him. He felt that he could control him.
2: Ida McKinley is a very tragic figure. What what ailments did the First Lady have, and what role was she able to play as First Lady given those ailments?
1: Yeah, she is a tragic figure. You know, she was the belle of Canton when young William McKinley, the lawyer, um, moved there to start his uh, legal career. Uh, she was a, a daughter of one of the most wealthy families. Her grandfather had come out with a newspaper press on a um, wagon pulled by oxen. and created a newspaper career and then her father got into banking and mining and a lot of other businesses and she was bright lively beautiful um and everybody she was everybody was courting her and the man she really wanted to marry uh died while she was on a trip a summer trip through Europe as a young woman uh and um McKinley kind of stepped in he was smitten with her from the first time he met her um, just kind of a casual introduction. So he had no reason to believe that uh, this woman would be anything other than a, a, a tremendous helpmate and somebody who he could be very, very proud of. But a number of things happened. Uh, her mother, she had a, a small daughter, a little daughter, and then she had another, she was pregnant again. Her mother died in the middle of that pregnancy, very tough on her. And then the uh, second baby, another daughter named after her, Ida, um, uh, died shortly after birth. And she went into a swoon. She went into a depression that was almost impossible to get out of between her mother, which she could get over, but her daughter, which she just had a hard time. And then uh, her first daughter, who this time was maybe four, she died. But this time, uh, Ida was absolutely bereft, and there's evidence of some kind of a carriage accident that also created uh, either a back injury or some kind of a hip or leg injury that made it difficult for her to be mobile. Uh, And on top of that, uh, she developed epileptic fits occasionally. Uh, So she now was not only physically impaired, uh, but psychologically impaired, she became somewhat peevish instead of being the sort of the lively person who commanded attention just by being so charming. And the interesting thing about this was that McKinley never wavered in his total and utter devotion to this woman, even as she became somewhat, uh, you know, potentially problematic as first lady or as first lady of Ohio when he was governor uh and even when he was in the in the congress he was in the congress for 14 years and became chairman of the ways and means committee uh he would always be very solicitous of her even to the extent that he would break up meetings with you know significant meetings uh over official business congressional business uh if uh, Ida called called out to him uh, <laughs> So uh, it's a it's a fascinating story, and I think it would make a, a pretty interesting movie or a mm-hmm, TV production. Mm-hmm. Just the relationship between the two of them.
2: Yeah, he was very devoted to her, um, for sure. And now, of course, her life became even more tragic as he entered his second term, the great re- re-election victory. He was assassinated. Can you tell us about? McKinley's assassin and the circumstances of his tragic death.
1: The assassin was a young man named Leon Salgaz. I guess that's how it's pronounced. I've never really heard it. I've just read it. Um, who was, who fancied himself an anarchist in a sort of a devotee of Emma Goldman, the uh, writer and lecturer and radical, uh, who was often called the queen of anarchy because she was sort of nihilistic in her political views. And Saul Gauze went to the exposition, the great uh, World's Fair, essentially, um, uh, Pan-American exposition in Buffalo, New York, in the fall of 1901. Uh, and his intent was to kill the President of the United States. McKinley was warned about um, being more careful uh, on security matters, but he sort of dismissed that and basically took a maybe frivolous view that nobody could possibly want to kill the president of the United States. Uh, and he received uh, visitors uh, in a long line at, um, at one of the exposition houses or buildings uh, at the fair. Uh, Saul Goss had put his hand in a kind of a um, um, bandage, like he had a wound or something, but inside that bandage was his pistol. He got right up to um, McKinley, face to face, uh, and he fired and and he hit him in the chest. And the bullet did not penetrate very far because he had his heavy clothing there. But he backed off uh, and got enough away so that Saul could get off another shot into his abdomen. Uh, And that one proved fatal. Not immediately. Um, But ultimately, he was uh, taken, he was affected by a a sepsis or some kind of infection. uh, And uh, he died, I think it was, if I can remember correctly, he died, it was, it was more than a week after the actual assassination.
2: So at the end of the day, as you show so well in this book, McKinley really was a transformative figure. He transformed presidential elections, he transformed Uh, the office of the presidency in many ways, he certainly transformed the role and stature of America in the world. Why is he not more recognized for that today?
1: Well, I tried to address that. And I also tried to maybe have some impact on how he was viewed in history. I don't think I've succeeded very far. Uh, I think there are a a number of things. Uh, uh, First of all, I think that a lot of it has to do with Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt wasn't the kind of a person who shared um, credit for anything. He always uh, put himself at the center of everything. Even his kids said that he wanted to be the uh, the bride at every wedding he ever attended and the corpse (laughs) at every funeral. (laughs) And uh, that was kind of his his approach. And he had this tremendous following of people who just uh, couldn't get enough of him. And many of them ended up being biographers. And in, they sort of adopted the same attitude that uh, whoever came ahead of Teddy Roosevelt couldn't have been very significant because he was the significant player who transformed the direction of America, which wasn't true. And then come the, uh, the later biographers uh, who were singing the praises of Theodore. And of course, he's such a great story uh and the result partly of that and maybe some other things i can mention but but i think mostly of that uh, the result was that uh, McKinley was seen as uh, as a kind of a passive president you know, somebody who allowed events to kind of wash over him and sure enough a lot happened in his presidency but he wasn't responsible for much of it uh they just it just happened well, that's not how American politics works. The president really does direct events or not. Um, but if big events happen in the presidential term, it's usually because of presidential action. And that was the case in, in McKinley's case. Um, and, you know, the the other trait that I mentioned before, was he managed by indirection and stealthy manipulation. Um, I have to tell a story. There was a guy by the name of Ben Butterworth, who was a congressman. And he was very devoted to uh, Mark Hanna. And and he didn't seem to gravitate to McKinley very much. It wasn't clear that he liked him very much. But one day he described McKinley by saying this, with this kind of this anecdote. He said, if McKinley, if I, Will and I were walking through an orchard uh, with but one bearing tree, and that bearing tree having but two apples on it, and he and I happened to be walking under that tree. He picked both apples. He put one in his pocket. He'd take a bite out of the other one, and he'd say, Ben, do you like apples?
2: <laughs> and I think what he
1: was trying to say was that McKinley always got the apples. Yeah, right. And he was always friendly about it. And he never winked or he never showed any animosity. Uh, and he always was friendly and friendly-faced. Uh, But ultimately, he got all the apples (laughs) and the apples that he got for America were those overseas possessions, the big Navy, which he didn't initiate, but which he continued. I think you can say he initiated the action uh, to get the Panama Canal built. Um, We had a treaty with the Brits that basically said neither one of us uh, would do it without being jointly with the other. And we had to get rid of that before we could build it. And that was a tough negotiation, which John Hay pulled off. So all of those things, the the, um, Beijing uh, episode, uh, the transformation of the relationship with the British, all of those things happened on his watch. And I think that he gets credit for a significant part of it. (laughs) So, Bob,
0: let's get into the personal side of POTUS twenty-five. See if we can get to know him a little better. Here we go. His LinkedIn profile would have been fairly impressive. School teacher, Army major, lawyer, congressman, governor, and president. Which title meant the most to him, do you think?
1: Well, there's a quote uh from him that indicates that the title that meant the most to him was his title as being an army major. Uh he someone asked him, I think when he was governor how he wanted to be addressed. Do you want to be addressed as governor, congressman? Uh, He was called the major, major. He said, "Uh, call me major. I earn that. I'm not so sure about the rest. Next thing,
0: against the same opponent, William Jennings Bryan, he was elected to the presidency and reelected by very comfortable margins. Now, was he the kind of guy that flaunted his victories or was he a bit more humble?
1: Well, he was was a man uh, of humble appearance. Um, but I think that the, it could be said that he um, he <laughs> he was not humble. He was very conscious of who he was, what he wanted to accomplish, and his capacity for accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish. And so he appeared humble, uh, but ultimately he was a man of great self-regard. Yeah, fair enough. Now, from Andrew Johnson to Woodrow
0: Wilson, he was the only POTUS among nine chief executives in during this period to not have any presidential whiskers. Was he especially tuned into his appearance? Did he always make sure he presented himself well?
1: Yeah, he had a he had a fastidious look about him. Uh, William Allen White described him. Uh, the journalist from Kansas described him as uh, having his Prince Albert coat was like never wrinkled, and his white vest front was never broken. Um, and even as a person, he had a kind of studied correctness. Um, so, yeah, he was. He was very conscious of how he projected himself and very formal. Now, it's unfortunate the
0: Secret Service wasn't around in his day to possibly prevent his assassination. But if they would have been, what do you think his Secret Service code name would have been?
1: I think it might have been Uncle. Because he was a very avuncular kind of fellow, so I think maybe they would just call him Uncle.
0: Finally, Bob, can you summarize in just a sentence or two his very
1: uh, interesting presidential period? Uh, yes, I, I would. I would. Um, I would define it as presidential activism within a context of uh, strict construction of the Constitution, and uh, that uh, is not an approach. Uh, that we see a lot of in the twentieth century, certainly the last half of the twentieth century, or the twenty-first century. But uh, it was an approach that McKinley followed, I think, uh, quite successfully. Bob, this has been fascinating. What What's next for you? Well, I'm doing a book, not on a president. I'm doing a book on a decade. I'm doing a book on the 1850s, and uh, and the run up to the Civil War and the dramatic turn political drama of uh, America struggling with that issue that couldn't really be solved constitutionally. Sounds fascinating. When, when do you think it will be coming out? Not for a while. Um, I've got another year and a half or more uh, on the project, okay. and I will, um, it'll probably be another eight or nine, ten months after that before it comes out. So it's, it'll be a while.
0: Well, you'll have to let us know. We'd love to have you back on the, the podcast.
1: Okay, I'll do that.
0: Thank you, Bob. We appreciate you being on American POTUS. Thanks, gents.
1: Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We would appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review this show and the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Robert Mary for joining us on this episode about William McKinley. More information on his book, President McKinley, Architect of the American Century, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from William McKinley, quote, That's all a man can hope for during his lifetime, to set an example, and when he is dead, to be an inspiration
1: for history.